0: A long time ago, I was doing a home visit with an elderly parishioner, now deceased. And she mentioned that she was planning to move to a nursing home and sell her house. She was, understandably, upset that under the agreement with the nursing home, she would lose most of her assets. She looked at me sadly and said, you know, you work hard all your life, you save your money, you do everything that you're supposed to but you still lose everything in the end. She was right, of course. Everything we own in this realm of existence will one day either belong to someone else or return to the dust. It doesn't matter how much money we have. There's a joke about a very wealthy man who died and wrote in the will that he wanted his wife to liquidate his assets and put them in the coffin so he could take it with him. As his widow and her family watched the coffin being lowered into the ground, one of her cousins said, That was a dirty trick he played on you. One thing I can't figure out, there were still only six pallbearers carrying the casket. If he wanted to take everything with him, why is the casket still so light? The widow responded with a smile, Oh, I wrote him a check. (laughs) But for this life, most people worry about money. While younger people worry about student debt and whether or not they'll be able to purchase a home, older people tend to worry about outliving their resources and paying for nursing care should it be needed, among other things. And everybody, everybody worries about healthcare costs. And have you seen the cost of eggs and gas lately? But it's not like money worries are unique to our time. In Jesus' day, many farmers had been reduced to sharecropper status. Sometimes the debt accumulated so much that farmers had no choice but to sell themselves and their families into slavery to cover the debt. Fishermen, too, faced financial pressures. Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, were part of the family business, which formed a syndicate. The syndicate would have to contract for fishing rights from Herod's brokers. And you can imagine that might cost a fair bit of money, either in in coin or trade. And then there were the taxes that had to be paid on the catch. Supplies for salting, pickling, smoking the fish. You get the idea. Money then, as now, moved upward. Caesar was at the top. Herod was in the middle. Most people were at the bottom. So it's striking when Jesus tells his disciples and the crowds listening in, don't worry. Their situation was worse off than ours is today, probably in every way. There were, they were only one bad harvest or one especially brutal tax collector away from starvation or slavery. So how can Jesus tell them not to worry when they had so much to worry about? Much of the Sermon on the Mount is concerned with our trust. Whom do we trust? Now, we can talk about this in terms of faith, but often when we talk about faith, unfortunately, we usually think of that as just intellectual assent. For example, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me so I can go to heaven when I die. That's an example of just an intellectual assent to something. Whether it changes my life or not is unknown. That's not the kind of faith Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about trust. Whom or what do we trust more than anything or anyone else? Do we trust our own abilities? Our good health? our financial resources, or earning ability? Luther's words from the the large catechism might give us pause. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. To have a God is nothing else but to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. Jesus' words are pretty clear. If we center our lives around acquiring, even if it is about acquiring enough, we will have made wealth our God. If we center our lives around our own capabilities to get these things, we will have made ourselves our own God. And far from extinguishing worry, that makes matters worse. Even if we do manage to acquire everything we could possibly dream of, that doesn't make worry go away. After all, such wealth doesn't last. Moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal, as Jesus says. Just like our health, our resources can evaporate in the blink of an eye. Jesus has a better way. Jesus' way is the way of trust. But it isn't trust in ourselves or our own abilities. And it certainly isn't trust in wealth itself, as if wealth provided us with everything we needed. It's trust in the God who provides everything we have. Everything we have. Rather than obsessing about what we lack, what's missing, Jesus calls us to look at what we have been blessed with. It's part of the Lord's Prayer itself. Give us today our daily bread. That's about daily bread is about just that what we need each day. Not as in as the author of Proverbs prayed in our first reading, we ask God to give us enough for the day. Not too much otherwise we might forget God and be our own god. Not too little otherwise we might be reduced to dishonoring God's name by theft. Enough Just enough, God. God's blessings for the day are more numerous than we can count. Luther provides a non-exhaustive list of God's blessings twice in his small catechism. In his explanation of the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, Luther includes with daily bread, food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, farm, fields, livestock, money, property, an upright spouse, Upright children, upright members of the household, upright and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, decency, honor, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. Now, we might think about what's lacking with some of those things, but the point is this. God provides us with everything good we have without our doing anything. When we trust in God, God's faithfulness and generosity to us, we will see things differently. There will be enough. We won't see things through a lens of lack, but through plenty. Maybe we won't have enough for everything our little hearts desire, but enough for what we need. Our priorities will change too. Suddenly, everything isn't about us anymore. It isn't about me and my needs. Our priorities shift to seeking the kingdom of God first and God's righteousness. Trusting that my needs will be taken care of. When I was a young pastor about a year or two after ordination, I heard a sermon at a retreat from an assistant to the bishop who's now gone up to glory. And he stunned me when he said that giving 10% had never been an issue for him. He'd never contemplated it in his head. It had been a practice of his family of origin. And so he'd continued it in his family. He'd continued it in his own life, and he'd found something interesting. However much or little he made, he and his family always had enough to meet their needs. I was stunned by that, especially being a young pastor with crushing student debt. Now, I don't offer this in the way of a, an example, but just as a simple testimony to God's goodness. Sarah and I are a long way from 10%. But, as we've made it a priority to increase our percentage of giving every year, we've found the same to be true. We have enough to meet our needs. God is truly good. And God is truly faithful. We're called to so much more than having and acquiring. We're called to seek God's kingdom in and through Jesus Christ. And that is our purpose statement as a congregation. It's there. We believe God is calling us to invite people into a deeper relationship with Christ so that they may discover true peace and be prepared to follow him in compassionate service. That's about the kingdom of God. Christ is our peace, our shalom that casts out fear. And when we seek him and the kingdom, we will find heavenly riches beyond our wildest dreams. Heavenly riches, not earthly ones. Heavenly riches in our relationships, in our faith, in our lives, and especially in Jesus Christ, our priceless treasure, who died and rose again for the life of the world. In him we have our inheritance as children of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.